Mm, I should be excited for today, Jimmy. I've waited all year for this and endured months of brain-numbing Showa Gamera movies, busy work, and shenanigans. But after what happened to Gary... Even discussing Guardian of the Universe with some of my best friends is sour. For Raymond, it is like losing family. He didn't go back to the legal action team office for a week, and he's barely been functional since then. The only upside is now we know for sure he's on our side. The board's gone too far this time. And the worst part is we have no way of pegging them for that accident. Yeah, who knows what happened to Gary's contact. He's either hiding or... The board got him. If a space warrior like you is scared to be here, I know we're in trouble. That clause in my contract about getting shot into space suddenly feels like a real threat. Got a message from Jessica? What about? She should know better than to try to message me just before a broadcast. Which phone? The direct line? Nate. Wow, she actually used my name, so this must be serious. I just got out of a meeting with Miss Perkins in her office. I was able to snap some photos of some weird stuff in there. She isn't who she says she is. She's... There's no way. No way. The board made her one of their thralls? <sighs> right. We have a show to do. But I'll definitely be paying Miss Perkins a visit today. Ugh, I forgot the board mandated you sit out today's episode because the last one where you barely said anything went over so well. Which doesn't seem fair. What are they having you do instead? Seriously? Paperwork? What a waste of your time and talent. But at least you're helping out poor Raymond. Producer Jed in the house. It's just been one of those days, weeks, months, years. <sighs> Live from the KIJU studios in beautiful Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, episode 48. The Tourist versus Camera, Guardian of the Universe. Hello, Kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through Tokusatsu. I am your host, Monster Island's very own film curator, Nate Marchand, but. Unfortunately, I am not joined by, some would say, the better half of this podcast. No, Jimmy is not here today. He has been assigned new work that, honestly, is quite beneath him by my Orwellian overlords. Yeah, I don't care. I'll say what I want. But 
I do think I have a replacement for him today that will be to your liking. Yep, that is my old robot friend, Jet Jaguar. You still enjoying all those mods you did to yourself for Singular Point, Jet? Still only caught about half of that. Anyway, we're moving on. This is going to be interesting. I don't even know if any of my guests are going to understand Jet. I can't. Well, like I said, I can only understand about half of what he says. But first, before we do that, I have a bit of unfinished business that I need to attend to. Yes, I need to finally have that interview with Spacewoman Kalara. Patch her through now, Jet. Hello, Kalara. Hello, Nate. Thanks for not keeping me waiting this time. Well, in all honesty, I was told in no uncertain terms by Miss Perkins that if I didn't interview you today, she would break me in half and launch the pieces into orbit. Ah, that makes sense. She's one of my biggest fans. I know because she sent me this strange wrist-style thing for me to autograph. I'm not sure what it is, but it's far from the weirdest thing that I've signed for a fan. What was the weirdest? Mock Fumiyaki's Pro Wrestling Singlet. I didn't have the heart to tell the fan that was worn by the actress who played me in Gamera Super Monster and not by me, but he insisted. Who was it? Kaichi. Oh, your little spaceman? Uh, he's a big spaceman now. Uh, you two didn't date like Richard Pusateri joked in the Super Monster commentary, did you? Of course not. But he did make himself a costume like mine and tried to fly by jumping out of his 10th story apartment window once. I always knew Kenny's were crazy. It was a good thing I was around to save him. Again. What's he up to these days? He's my manager. Oh, he's a space manager? Very funny, Nate. But yes, he runs my professional life when I'm not flying around breaking up puppy mills and adding those poor doggies to my pet store. Which brings up the question, what are you and your fellow space women up to nowadays? Marsha and Matan both retired from superheroing. Marsha manages the most successful Mazda dealership in Tokyo now, and Matan is the principal of her school. I teach an online course on how to become a superheroine. In fact, your sister... Pseudo-sister! Jessica was right. You are a stubborn guy. But she was very interested in taking my course because Miss Perkins recommended it for an aspiring magical... <clears throat> What's in this course? Lessons like henshin dance your way to better health and super suits, how to solve all your problems with an electric keyboard, Kaichi loves that one, and you're not useless, you're just under constant threat of annihilation from an alien menace. Sounds great. I'm sure Jessica is learning a lot. She is. I've been sending her health food recipes created by Makfumiyaki. I have to support the women who immortalized me on film, after all. And I can vouch for their ability to enhance one's superpowers. What's the primary ingredient? Snake oil? Actually, it's manda oil. Shipped to the mainland from Monster Island. Huh? Who's selling that? Someone the internet calls the Kaiju Grifter. Which doesn't make sense because the stuff he sold us works. 
Anyway, Miss Perkins said she was going to try to arrange for you and the other space women to visit Gamera on the island. When can we expect you to do that? I'm not sure. I am a very busy woman. I have cats to save from trees, aliens to fight, and electric keyboard lessons to teach. Miss Perkins is also having trouble getting approval from the board for me and the space women to visit for some reason. But... I promise you we will come to see the tourists and Gamera. Marsha, Matan, and I are so happy to see he recovered from his kamikaze of Xanon. I'm still not convinced that wasn't an explosive parade float. You're just silly, Nate. But still not as silly as your movie! You say that, but as you learned, watching it only makes one stronger. Whatever doesn't killara me, right? I'll definitely have to share that one at the next Henshin Hero Society meeting. In fact, I think your sister... It's like I tell my writer friends, you can have that one for free. Thank you for coming on MIFV. It was... a pleasure. You're welcome. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have a Henshin dance class to teach. Oh, would you like to give it a try? I saw you do the Space Woman Challenge on TikTok, and you've got potential. Thanks, but I think I'll stick with Ballroom, if you don't mind. Well, your loss. Sayonara! Well, now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's move on to my real guests here today. I am joined by not quite everyone I was hoping for, but I got most of the original crew from Monster Island back together today because for me, this is a momentous movie and it deserves to be seen by more people, especially people who have not had a whole lot of exposure to the kaiju genre. So first and foremost, I am happy to introduce to you once again, Timothy Deal and Nick Hayden from the Derail Trains of Thought podcast. Hello. Hi. <laughs> We're happy to be here. Yes. I'm I'm actually kind of relieved to make it here in one piece. Oh, really? Yeah. The I, podcast didn't bring you here this time? No, no. This time I was just going for a walk outside my house and I got abducted by this trio of pigs on a spaceship. Oh. Yeah. It was kind of hairy for a little while. I mean, they, they seemed friendly enough, but they had like all kinds of weird things going wrong with their spaceship. Like their seats had been replaced by a pop-up toaster parts and, oh man and there's talking food and walk running wandering around i'm just i'm just relieved they were able to set me back here on monster island in one piece yeah it wouldn't surprise me if they're friends with my intrepid producer did they have uh, an announcer voice that over they did it was super weird like they he seemed to know everything that was going on it's really weird to hear a narrator i mean it was already kind of weird that i was on a spaceship with a bunch of pigs but yeah still, yeah yeah yeah, Having definitely. Everything narrated space. to you makes it worse. In space, yes, yeah. exactly. Yes, yes. Yeah. But that's not how the narrator said it, obviously. No, no, no. no. It, was, it was more like, in space! Of Pigs course. in space! Not to be confused with the war. In space! <laughs> that one was for you, Jimmy. That yeah. one was for you. I, I hope he's having fun wherever he is. He is at the offices of the Monster Island Legal Action Team doing paperwork for Raymond Martin because due to recent events, his paralegal is no longer with us. I'm not quite prepared to talk about that, but we'll have to, at least briefly, for today's movie. What about you, Nick? I never went home last time. You didn't? No, I. There's, you got like this a ship in the middle of your island just been hanging out there. Really? Yeah, yeah. 
you should know. There's a lot of dynamite in there, so just careful. Okay. Oh, but it, it, it's good protection. I got Theo and some of my wife and stuff come over. I shipped them here. You haven't so. seen any smoke over there, have you? I, I hear like these chains I've, sometimes. I've heard rumors. I've heard rumors of a smoke monster in those parts of the island. But I've been pretty safe. So yeah. Although the dynamite is going to be one heck of a safety hazard. Captain Gordon, if you're listening to this right now, you might want to send Ozaki and his mutant boys to go take care of that. I'm just saying. I mean, we already had to deal with a terrorist bunker that got set up here uh, without anybody knowing. It's been a nice vacation, just kind of off the grid, mm-hmm. hanging out, eating coconuts, and yeah, just. Ranch. Dodging kaiju occasionally, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Although I'm guessing Gamma probably showed up in case anything got a little yeah, too hairy. I, I think pretty low key. So yeah, yeah, I can understand that. But I mean, the board making Gamma a king of the monsters is really starting to go to that big terrapin's head. I'm just saying. And then that other voice that you heard briefly before I introduced him is, as I like to call him, my anime hazer, Joe Matter. And I say that because. When we were in college, you gave me my proper introduction to anime, and you decided to start with Neon Genesis Evangelion. I wasn't fully prepared for that. No one is fully prepared for that, but that was my introduction to anime as well. So I thought that I would give you the proper introduction. Yeah. And it was also Nick's it's, introduction It's the to anime, only way so. to get into anime. It really is. Apparently. At no. least at that time in at history. that time in no, history, yeah. I now, start, now there's other ones. Um, <laughs> I started with Cowboy Bebop. I'm, I'm, well, I'm sorry for what. what well, okay. Well, you, started, with you. you started with like Wim. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Standard and yeah. You can't well, go yes. Down. But <laughs> I mean, admittedly, if we're gonna keep this accurate, the first one you did make me watch was Bebop. But then you decided immediately after that that I had to see Ava, and I think you did it just for your own entertainment, just to see my eyes bug out of my skull. That, that so, might be true. Yes. You sadist. <laughs> <sighs> I already work for sadists at this point, so... It's your life. Yeah, basically, at uh, this point. Since this is a monster podcast, we should really review the Ava Rebuilds. Hey, <laughs> join MIFE Max on Patreon and make it happen. <laughs> I got slots open, baby. <laughs> And I would not be opposed to that because Hideaki Anno not only directed a Godzilla movie, he is a huge fan of Kaiju and Tokusatsu. And if you've seen enough of it, like I have, you watch Ava, it's all over the place. In fact, you and I actually streamed Ava Rebuild 4 together thrice upon a time. Yes. And I swore up and down. And Jimmy freaked out because he, he was watching it with us. And he swore up and down that they used the War in Space theme. <laughs> yeah, actually, I think they did. Mm-hmm. Wow, Jimmy was screaming in our ears, though. Yes, that was that was, was, like, that was a little is... annoying. We, I mean, I'm telling you, people, if you think Shinji Akari was had, whining, it, yeah, is scree- is screechy when he screams. You haven't heard my Jimmy, intrepid producer yeah. take that, Jimmy. Anyway, <laughs> oh man, he's gonna get a lot of abuse while he's gone, isn't he? Uh, apparently. Okay. I think what Jed is trying to say is that if I do that again, he might have to punch, punch, punch my lights out. So apparently he's sticking up for Jimmy today. Someone has to. I suppose. Someone's got to do it, right? Anyway, it is still the year of... Camera! Camera! Camera is really neat. Camera is filled with meat. We've been eating Camera! Flames, claws, breath, scales, fun. Today, like I said, it's a momentous occasion. I have been waiting for this day all year, gentlemen. I have suffered through Showa Gamera, and we finally got to the good stuff. 
You got to the Heisei trilogy. I mean, I will never subject you to Gamera Super Monster. I'm not even sure any of the MST3K hosts and the bots can save Super Monster, even though it is just asking for them to mock it. I'm just saying. Even more so than the ones they've already done, it's so just mockable anyway. I, I don't think you could get worse than some of those MST3K versions. Yes, you can. <laughs> if you have the fortitude, I'll try it sometime. Let's wait until I'm in a depressed era so you can subject me to self-loathing like that. I get I'm just saying <laughs> it has kaiju superheroes and spaceships, which means I should love it. And I don't. Something's wrong with the writing. <laughs> That's only the least of its problems. <laughs> anyway, we're not talking about that. We're talking about Gamera Guardian of the Universe. Dang it. Then I promise you, I don't want to hype it too much. But this is the first of a trilogy. This trilogy is amazing. But again, I don't want to hype it too much because I don't want you to have such ridiculous expectations that you end up disappointed. I don't want to sour it. But all right, I'm too excited. We need to get to the screening room now. All right. So just so you know, our Toku topic will be Atlantis because Atlantis is actually kind of important in this movie. So anyway, now that we got that all the way to the screening room. Gamera is a determined and protective tortoise-like creature created by Atlantis in ancient times to destroy the Gauss Swarm. He was unable to do so and was put into hibernation until several Gauss awakened in present day. He continues his mission to destroy them, putting himself in harm's way to protect Asagi and other humans. The ravenous and vicious Super Gauss is one of three Gauss awakened by climate change. Originally created by Atlantis, the beast overwhelmed the ancient civilization and hibernated for millennia until present day. Their motivations are to feed and reproduce. The closest thing to a Kenny in this film is Asagi Kusanagi, the kind and pious teenage girl who becomes Gamera's priestess after touching a Magatama bead found on the kaiju's back. She advocates for Gamera, trying to persuade government and military officials that he is not their enemy. Her friend, the intelligent and insistent Mayumi Nagamine, is a gifted ornithologist investigating the Gauss attacks. She advises Japanese officials on how to combat the Gauss, although she goes largely unheeded and spearheads operations to kill the creatures. The heroic and inquisitive Yoshinari Yonomori is a Japanese Coast Guard crew member investigating the mysterious atoll that appears in Japanese waters, and his paths eventually cross with Nagamine and Asagi. He takes a romantic liking to Asagi and tries to impress her and her family. The bumbling but well-meaning Inspector Sutomo Osako is a Nagasaki police detective assisting Nagamine in her investigations into the Gauss attacks. The human and kaiju plotlines are unified. The protagonists are brought together because of the kaiju, and the kaiju are the impetus for their stories. What little subplots they have outside of these are minuscule by comparison. While the Japanese government sees Gamera as a threat too, the Gauss are the problem. Nagamine accidentally forces one Gauss to retreat using her camera's flash. All three Gauss are lured to the Fukuoka Dome with raw meat, where two of them are trapped by closing the roof and then tranquilized. One escapes and is killed with a single swat from Gamera. As Gamera approaches, the JSDF is unable to attack him since it is forbidden in the Constitution and they need authorization. The Gauss escape their cages as Gamera attacks by cutting the bars with supersonic beams. Gamera later attacks the two Gauss, killing one with a plasma ball, 
but the other retreats after wounding him. The JSDF then attacks Gamera with missiles, tanks, and artillery at Mount Fuji, but he survives. Super Gauss flies to the heart of Tokyo, where she is attacked by the JSDF with missiles, which she dodges, destroying Tokyo Tower. The problem is solved when Gamera returns after recovering from his wounds. He destroys Super Gauss's nest in Tokyo Tower, and after a long battle throughout the city and even in space, he kills Super Gauss. The script by famed anime screenwriter Kazunori Ito is a relatively simple and focused thriller with a bit of mystery and an ensemble cast. Subplots, as previously mentioned, are minimal. The film was made for $4.5 million, which was less than half the budgets of both Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla and Godzilla vs. Destroya, the two Godzilla films released before and after it, respectively. Ironically, Thanks to bold and clever cinematography by director Shusuke Kaneko, the film's special effects outshine both of these G-films. Most of the effects consisted of traditional tokusatsu, suitmation, miniatures, pyrotechnics, etc., but effects supervisor Shinji Higuchi also used limited CGI for things like missiles and the kaiju's animated rays. What sells it is the low, ground-level camera angles that accentuate the illusion of size, the incredible levels of detail in the miniatures, and the special cameras used to film the miniatures. While the sparsely used CGI hasn't aged well, most of the effects look as good now as they did back then and rank as some of the best in the genre. Unlike most of the Showa Gamera movies, this is a serious and somewhat dark film with a tremendous amount of gravitas. While it has some science fiction trappings, It depicts fantastical events and concepts in a realistic setting. It uses some of the past Gamera movies' tropes, but this film was a bold reimagining of them. Kaneko sought to make a firmly grounded kaiju film, using its realism to help the audience accept the fantastical elements. This went against the initial mandates of Daie, who wanted a traditional, kid-friendly Gamera movie. The entire production was something not often attempted in the genre, let alone in the Gamera series. While it can be argued that the film reinforces some elements from both Gamera vs. Bowergon, no kid characters, more serious tone, and Gamera vs. Gauss, by using the titular foe, Guardian of the Universe ultimately establishes style for the Gamera franchise with its realism, mythology, dark tone, and cinematography, among other things. It set the stage for the upcoming sequels and even influenced the one Gamera film that followed the trilogy. In the early 90s, Daei looked to revive either the Daimajin or Gamera series, settling on the former, most likely in the hopes of tapping into modern audiences' nostalgia. Kaneko's goal was to take the Gamera series into a new direction. Somehow, both he and the studio produced a film that satisfied them. The film was meant to entertain the teen-slash-adult market as well as kaiju and possibly anime fans. The film grows 520 million yen, about $6 million, with an attendance of 900,000 when released March 11, 1995 in Japan, making a decent profit. ADV Films screened a subtitle print of Guardian at film festivals and conventions from 1996 to 1997 under the title Gamera the Guardian of the Universe. The dub version directed by Matt Greenfield was released by ADV on VHS in 1997 and DVD in 2003. The film became a critical darling, with Japanese critics ranking it number two on the list of best Japanese films of 1995. Even Roger Ebert gave it a dubious thumbs up. 
It remains beloved by kaiju fans who consider it one of the best films in the genre. ADV replaced the film's original end theme, The Myth, with a new English-language song titled Gamera Always Wins, which was performed by Charles Campbell. The infamous UK dub produced by Manga Entertainment included additional techno music provided by the True Love Label Collective to fill in silences in the original soundtrack. There are multiple forces at play in this film. The Japanese government, as seen with Masaki Saito, refuses to listen to experts like Nagamine about the threat posed by the Gauss. This leads to the military taking action against Gamera despite his benevolence. Similarly, they don't listen to Asagi when she insists that Gamera seeks to protect them. The JSDF is unable to attack Gamera at first because of constitutional restrictions and must wait for politicians to debate the issue and pass new orders. Scientific discovery and public safety clash when it's argued by Saito that the Gauss, as a newly discovered species, should be captured instead of killed. The Gauss's instinct for food and reproduction threatens humanity's right to exist and its place at the top of the food chain. Gamera himself was created by Atlantis to destroy the Gauss, who became too numerous and vicious for them to control. Multiple themes are present in the film. The hubris of Atlantis in creating the Gauss and trying to save themselves with Gamera is likened to humanity's pollution causing climate change, which in turn awakened the Gauss. Nagamine says that despite this, she doesn't want to see mankind be wiped out. The council of experts is to be heeded. Asagi's faith in Gamera is unwavering, and she is willing to suffer with him as his priestess, a burden Gamera lifts from her in gratitude after killing Super Gauss. The protagonists tirelessly pursue truth, scientific or otherwise, and speak truth to power. In the end, humanity learns to trust a being greater than itself for its salvation. I can't wait to discuss this film with some of my best friends, so let's start the Toku Talk! Alright guys, I'm still riding high on this movie, but I'm going to try to not be selfish and just rave about it, so I want to ask you guys first. Opening thoughts, what'd you think? Much better than the show of Urgens. (laughs) You only saw one unless you watched more of the MST3K episodes. I've seen all of the Mystery Science Theater 3000 episodes, just not all of them, not here on the island. Yeah, Yeah, but uh, Barogon still occasionally likes to harass us, but... Barogon wants to know, (laughs) can you play fetch? (laughs) Yes, that was Joe impersonating Barogon, harassing us on the show. So, yeah, so... It sounded more like Jack Nicholson as a joker. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, I would make an argument that there is a reference to that movie in this one. Yes, the scene at the end when Gamera and Gauss are (laughs) doing their ridiculous anime maneuver and flying into space and Gamera slows down a little bit and Gauss flies up ahead of him and then spreads his wings right when he goes past, I think it was the sun. Okay, yeah. In the distance and it's it's like, Batman. (laughs) (laughs) He just didn't stop in the right spot, but this is clearly Batman. Gauss is Batman? I've actually seen that T- I'm not kidding. I have seen that T-shirt. Someone has made a T-shirt. You can go online and buy it that has the Adam West Batman logo, but it says Gauss (laughs) instead. Which actually, that is a fitting way to talk about this because this 
is how Adam you do West. Yeah, <laughs> I'm getting to that. This is how you do a gritty reboot right. In fact, my friend John LeMay said in one of his books, the Heisei trilogy is to the Showa Gamera movies what Batman 89 is to the Adam West Batman. <laughs> and I think that is a fitting description. Yeah, certainly better actors and actresses. Oh, I mean, for this film. I thought it was quite enjoyable. Yeah, I watched it yeah. with my, well, my kids were here to watch it. With yes, us, so. I mean, I was just going to say, uh, Shinobu Nakayama, who played Nagamine, she got nominated for a Japanese Oscar for her performance in this movie. Nice. In fact, this movie actually was nominated and won a whole slew of awards. It was actually voted by Japanese film critics in 1995 when it came out as the second best Japanese-made movie to come out that year. What was first? I don't know. I just know it was number two. (laughs) I don't remember what else came out in 1995. It wasn't a Godzilla movie, I can tell you that. The Godzilla movie that came out that year doesn't hold a candle to this. Fight me! Wasn't uh, Jurassic Park 1995? 93. But we're talking Japanese-made films. Not... Films in general. In fact, funny enough, although I remember seeing this back in the day, this, weirdly enough, when it got released in the United States, because it had a limited theatrical run in the United States, this got a thumbs up from Roger Ebert. Hmm. Although his love for it was very ironic, and he compared it to Air Force One, which I think came out the same year, when I guess I think it was 1997 when this, hit, right. when this came to the United States. Oh, okay. And I think he said, this is not as good a movie as... He didn't like Air Force One. He, this is not as good a movie as Air Force One, but it's a more enjoyable film-going experience than Air Force One. And then proceeded to make jokes in the review about how Gamera flies through igniting flatulence. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm pretty sure his love for this movie was incredibly ironic which is mildly annoying for me because i think this is actually a legitimately good film but let's hear from the dtot guys here well nick what do you think i enjoyed it i watched it with my family was here and we were watching it we really enjoyed it and my son is all about we're all watching more kaiju movies now i'm sucking him in you are <laughs> and i don't know i just thought like everything moved real well and the, like the acting was much better and the summation was good and the climax was very anime and exciting. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Speaking of the actors, because I just I have to bring this up by Ayako Fujitani, who played Asagi. Everyone knows this, but you have to bring it up. She's Steven Seagal's daughter. Her mother is Japanese. Clearly did not get her acting chops from dear old dad <laughs> because she's not a block of wood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. I actually enjoyed her performance as the go-between between her and Gamera. She's, uh, she's described as a priestess, which I do think is fitting. And we'll, I have notes related to that that we'll get into in a, a little bit more. But basically what was going on with that, because uh, Shusuke Kaneko, who directed this, I've met the guy, by the way. He's, really, he's a really interesting fella. He was at G-Fest a few years ago. And I've also met the special effects director, Shinji Higuchi who was actually at the first G-Fest I ever went to. Their personalities are total opposite, by the way. Higuchi is much more outgoing and actually a pretty funny fella, and Kaneko takes himself very seriously, and he's actually kind of shy. But they didn't want to do the old-school Gamera movies. Daie was trying to reboot Gamera or Daimajin, actually, at this point in the early 90s, and they ended up going with Gamera, and they wanted to basically go make it like they were before. But when they got Kaneko to direct it, because he didn't, he was knocking on Toho's door because he said, I want to direct a Godzilla movie because he loved Godzilla movies. He didn't like the old Gamera movies. He thought they were terrible. 
And he was right. Yes. <laughs> but he didn't want to do it. So, But he couldn't get Toho to let him direct a Godzilla movie. And then Daie came a knock and said, hey, you want to direct our new Gamera movie? He's like, oh, <laughs> fine, but you got to let me do what I want. And then he went and talked to Kazunori Ito, who was uh, one of his screenwriter friends, that you would know Joe because he worked on the Cyborg 009 manga back in the late 70s. But what you really know him from is outside of this trilogy, what he's probably best known for is he wrote Ghost in the Shell, the original movie. (laughs) (laughs) So. Yeah, that explains a lot. So I'm telling you, when I was researching for this episode, I knew there were anime connections with this movie and this whole trilogy, really, but I didn't realize just how many there were. There is a very high pedigree of people who worked on this, I would say, especially compared to what we saw before. But, Tim, what were your initial thoughts? Eh, it was okay. I'm sorry to be a a bit of a wet blanket on your enthusiasm, but for most of these kaiju movies, I'm usually more interested in the period of filmmaking that they Mm -hmm. represent than the actual kaiju stories. And this was not really an exception. Like, it was fascinating because I think this is the only 90s era kaiju that I've seen so far, which so it's that in itself is interesting to see how things have changed from the earlier ones that I've seen. But it's also interesting in a way how things haven't changed, like in terms of like the breaking you know, of toy well, buildings. And I need to show you Shin Godzilla. Trust me, it's a lot different. <laughs> well, I, I kind of imagine it at that point with it being all anno and <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, but also the they didn't use suits in that so one. It was CGI. My question I had after watching me thinking, oh, this is 90s. And like Tim said, a lot of the special effects are bad or about the same. Yeah. And it's right around the era where people are starting to use CG. When does... There's some CGI in, in this. Okay. CGI there's... that hasn't aged well. <laughs> CGI <laughs> on the missiles coming at your face. But, yeah. yeah. But, I, mean, I mean, like, for yeah. the monsters. Does that change in Japanese film? Yeah. They've soon? started using CGI okay. now. Shin Godzilla, they they did mocap. Okay. Was, that, was that the first one? No. Did it major? There's, okay. There were actually... One of the sequels. I'd love to have you guys come back for the sequels. In Gamera 3, which is my personal favorite of the three, because this is one of those rare trilogies. I don't want to, again, I don't want to hype it too much, but this is one of those rare film trilogies that actually gets better as they go. (laughs) And they used CGI for Gamera's opponent, Iris, in the third movie, but it's not all CGI. They switched between practical and CGI. It's mostly when Iris... Because Iris can fly. So it's when Iris is flying around that they were using CJ. Okay. Iris ba- basically looks like a Final Fantasy boss, but we're not here to talk <laughs> about Iris right now. Yeah. Well, I mean, this has surprised me in a way because, correct me if I'm wrong, and I will readily admit it, but I would imagine Japanese film studios are probably a few years behind the Hollywood studios in terms of some of the special effects. Yeah, it, that, it boils down to resources. They just don't have as much money to throw around as a Hollywood studio. But it's also, I think it's because they want to keep to some traditions. Sure. There are just yeah. certain ways that films are made in Japan, and they like sticking to those old traditions. Most of the movie studios have moved away from practical effects in favor of CGI now. But a lot of Japanese television shows, uh, the tokusatsu shows, I mean, they still use suits. They'll use CGI and to, to enhance some things or do some crazier kind of anime-style attacks and uh-huh. effects and all of that. But the monsters, the superheroes, all that, they're still practical. They still use the miniature mm-hmm. buildings and because they just like doing it. Yeah. 
Well, and in, in terms of like 90s style, I always enjoy watching 90s movies nowadays in particular just because of the fact that they're shot on film. It just mm-hmm. it feels different and fresher in a, in a sense. There's something about the well, the stock photography, well, not stock photography, the film stock that that, that yes. used and it's like yes. it just feels different than digital stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's better or worse. It's just different. Mm-hmm. And that's cool. Well, and the really th- and the thing that's amazing about this is that the copies of this that I have in the vault are the new remasters that were put out by Arrow Video, and they are gorgeous. Mm. Oh, and that's what if you find it anywhere to stream because you can. Attention, people, you can stream this now on Tubi and on Amazon Prime for free. Those are the ones that they have on there. And like I said, they're technically you pay for Prime. What? Technically, you pay for Prime, but... Oh, yes. It's not true 4K, but they've up-resed it to basically about as close to 4K as you can get without it actually being filmed in 4K. Nice. It's great. (laughs) And let me tell you, they gave the same treatment as best as they could to the Showa movies and up-resing them... Doesn't help. Doesn't help them. It actually kind of makes it worse. You can (laughs) literally see the strings a heck of a lot better. But with these 90s ones, it it just looks so much better, I have to say. And watching it, I really enjoy just like, so you have like the two, you know, the Gauss and Gamera and their plot line and they're building and they're interacting, you know, they're interchanging. Mm -hmm. And it just, I thought it was really nicely balanced between the two sides and how the humans and the kaiju all yeah I, it, anybody it, who wants to say we don't need human kaiju but we shut your traps and watch the gamma trilogy i'm just saying the characters in this are essential to this movie if you took the humans out of this movie it would be so boring it would look pretty and it might be really exciting for i don't know 20 minutes but without them you lose so much I, yeah, it's just, like I, saying I we go to a hockey game just to see the fights it's not, <laughs> yeah basically it's not it's not what's actually there it's mm-hmm. not what the game is it's just the fight so, yeah. Well, you, and the, if you take out the emotion from the humans, you take out like, oh, Gamera is actually doing more damage than the other guy. He didn't kill anybody. Why are you being dumb, government? <laughs> oh, well, that is a theme. That is a theme because you see in this, oh, there's, there's so many ideas are coming to my head right now. I just I did way too much research on this. First, to your point, Nick, talking about the plot structure yeah. of this. Ito had a different idea how he wanted to structure this, and then Kaneko came in and changed that. Ito originally wanted it to be more like King Kong versus Godzilla, where there there are these two unrelated monsters that have their own stories going on, and they eventually cross paths, which is how King Kong versus Godzilla works. But these are much more intertwined, which is... Yeah, I'm getting to that. And on paper, that actually makes some sort of logical sense, because to this day, King Kong versus Godzilla remains the highest grossing kaiju film ever made. Okay. But what... Kaneko wanted to do is he wanted to have the monsters have their stories be intertwined, be related to each other so that there was more of a connection and make everything seem much more intertwined. Because there's a lot of stuff in this about connection in Mm -hmm. this, you know, with Gamera and Asagi and things like that. So Mm -hmm. it seemed very fitting. And I think actually it adds an extra layer of gravity, I think, to this. Well, and then like Joe was saying, then it makes sense that like people are confused on who's our actual enemy. Because yeah, they all they both show up at the same time. It seems like Gamera came. He's caused more of the problem. Like Gauss don't seem that big of a deal at first. And well, I, yeah. Gamera, well, it's because they're smaller. Yeah, I was gonna say Gamera is just bigger. So right? he just comes yeah. out and destroys stuff, and you don't really. I mean, we know he's protecting them, but mm-hmm. you can understand why people might not yeah. think that. Yeah, because that was one of the things that Conoco wanted to do with these movies. That as weird as it sounds, he said this was a radical take on trying to do not only Gamera but just these movies in general, and that was realism the SDF forces 
can't attack Gamera because it's like he's technically not attacking us, so we can't do anything unless the government tells us we can. Which is basically what a whole, children. basically ha- half of Shin Godzilla right there. I mean, but yeah. So they're making, but they're paying lip service to that to mm-hmm. actual things. Yep. And it also, I think, goes back to something that Shiro Honda famously said about kaiju, which is basically that they're born too big. And so Gamera is the good guy, but because he's gigantic and he has to get from point A to point B, I have to get from the ocean to the ball stadium where the Gauss are. That means I have to go through through the city, (laughs) which means I'm going to wreck stuff. I'm not trying to hurt anybody, but I have to wreck stuff to get there because I'm a big boy. I think, and, they were, I think they were really upset that he took out the baseball stadium. Yeah. The Japanese weirdly love baseball. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. But that is a theme in this movie, and you see it actually continue to be developed through the trilogy. There's real consequences mm-hmm. to what we see in this that carries over from movie to movie. This whole trilogy really does love wrestling with the fact that, yeah, Gamera is the good guy, but he's still causing collateral damage. Mm-hmm. And we, as the humans, have to deal with that collateral damage, even though he's trying to save us. The Berndellian insurance society will not pay them. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Can you imagine the insurance girls chasing camera around all everywhere? (laughs) I want this as an anime now. (laughs) Given all the anime connections, and that's like, why not at this point? But there's just so many interesting things that are going on in this movie, I think. Millie's going to offer him a 30-pack of donuts. (laughs) (laughs) It might work, actually. (laughs) Maybe set a big pile of them in the dome so they can try to track them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Can I ask a question about... Go for it. (laughs) We're talking about domes. I was confused in how they lured the Gaius. How do you say the, the Gauss? The Gauss, the Gauss. In, in there. How, yeah. How did they lure them? And because that was one thing I was confused by. I, had- I think what it was was that they went and they robbed the meat packing plant where Rocky would go practice and stole all of his practice dummies and then dumped it <laughs> in the <laughs> in the baseball stadium. So they came after. Well, it. they were also directing, basically forcing with the lights too, weren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like they, the, they. Yeah, they were directing because the they lights. they don't like. Uh, yeah, because apparently. Apparently, the Gauss are epileptics and don't like flashing lights. Okay, I, I, I just wasn't fo- <laughs> following how, why they left the island. And it's like, they couldn't have gone that far just for a pile of carcasses. <laughs> for food. Yeah, I think they but, chased them that way. And then when they got there, they, they got there. Like, yeah, okay. and you know that the Gauss are evil. Because that was one of the things they did. Because the studio told Conoco and company, don't make Gamera scary. Because they still thought of Gamera as this kids movie thing. So Conoco and company said, okay, here's our compromise. We're going to make Gauss as evil as possible. And you know how you know Gauss are evil? Because they killed the dog and missed the old lady. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know something's evil when it kills your dog. (laughs) They killed the dog! (laughs) Okay, well, you know what, for my money, what the creepiest image of the entire movie was? The glasses sliding through a pile of, of bird poop. Oh, yeah. the pellet. Yeah. Oh, gosh, that was gross. <laughs> Which, like, on one hand, kind of harkens back to Jurassic Park. Yeah. In a way. But yeah, also makes me think of, remember how I said uh, uh, recent events with Mr. Martin's paralegal? Yeah, uh, one of the gals got loose and uh, bad things happened. Oh, I'll leave thought. it at that. Yeah, still. I'm surprised like, you don't get hazard pay here. I think I'm going to start demanding hazard pay at this point. I'm you just think not the you... overlords pay him? Oh, they do. <laughs> they also have a looming threat of being shot into space in my contract. So, 
Some people yeah. would consider that a boon. Actually, considering what you have to deal with, there I can see of two people that have survived being shot into space that had better deals overall. Actually, it's B three at this point. Yeah, three. It? Yeah. Yeah, well, I need a. Well, I'm, one was stuck on the moon. So. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I uh, may have to consult with those guys because Get I'm starting time. to feel their pain. But anyway, yes. <laughs> but yeah, that was a freakish scene. But that's one of the things this movie very quickly establishes we're not your daddy's camera. <laughs> this ain't your daddy's camera. <laughs> For sure. Completely different tone and almost completely different sensibilities, I feel like, in a lot of ways. Except for the fact that they do still, because of studio mandates, because Conoco didn't go completely his own with that. He did get some mandates from the studio and he kept to them, but he did it in his own way. The idea of Asagi being the priestess mm-hmm. and having a connection with Gamera does harken back to all like, of those dang kiddies. It's a, it's <laughs> a way better. The annoying kids that yes. you wish got eaten. Hey, one of them was my was my intrepid producer, so be nice. But this is a much better way to do it. Yes, uh, it's a much yes. better way to do it. And that was something that he wanted to do intentionally. So we have it's a teenage girl as opposed to some obnoxious know-it-all ten-year-old boy. And that's I mean, that's a very downplayed in many ways. It's all implied that she's doing the side connection and helping her mm-hmm. and everything, but yeah. there's not a lot of talking or overblown but anything. It's interesting you talk about this being such a radical departure, and I only saw the one Gamera movie, but I do kind of recognize some of the structure of the original one, because, again, the kid, but then also you've got the young male scientists and the young female scientists that are mm-hmm. doing the bulk of the investigation, and mm-hmm. they go consult their specialist friend. He's not quite as involved in the plot as Mr. Cool eye patch guy was <laughs> i forget what his name was now but there's still some of that that core gamma dna there oh yeah for sure it's there it's just actually done well finally <laughs> oh yeah. yeah so question about the priestess thing so all those little i don't know what little makatama beads okay Com- thank you Thomas. i mean <laughs> i was gonna ask about that too because like i've seen that phoenix Wright's assistant wears one of those oh really on a necklace. oh yeah yeah uh raymond martin loves phoenix Wright. <laughs> in fact his avatar on twitter is phoenix Wright. so my question is like there were tons of those what I mean, are is, the, is the plan like there would have been lots of people connected to gamera but only one only I that's kind of the implication. There's a prequel comic actually that was made for this okay. by Matt Frank and I can't remember the writer's name, unfortunately. I should have brought the comic with me to double check that. But I've actually corresponded with the writer a little bit. And uh, apparently he also made the connection that Jimmy was one of the Gamera kids. And I'm like, I'm not the only one who's crazy enough to think that. Okay. Mm-hmm. But that does seem to be the implication, for sure. And if you want more details on the Makatama, I got a note here for you. Go for it. Yeah. Yeah. So Makatama are jewels that date back to about 1000 BC in Japan. They were originally decorative, but later took on religious significance, hence why they're used in here. And to a certain extent, probably why, what is her name? Maya. Maya. Probably why Maya wears it. Because she's like a spirit medium or Mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They are mentioned in the Kujiki and the Nihon Shoki, which is... The oldest collections of Japanese mythology and, and history. Suzanu, the storm god, received 500 of them from a jewel-making deity and presented them to his sister, Amaterasu, the sun goddess. If you want to learn more about them, check out my episode on the three treasures. That's episode 13 of MIFE. Who bit them off and blew them into the wind to create other deities. 
One famous story has Amaterasu shutting herself in a cave, bringing darkness to the world, and Magatama were hung on a 500-branch tree to lure her out. One of the sacred treasures of Japan, again, go back to listen to that episode, is the Yasukuni no Magatama. Basically, these are like the crown jewels, equivalent to the crown jewels in Japan. And then Noro priestesses in Okinawa wear Magatama necklaces. But the thing is, is there's not a whole lot known about them other than these simple little facts. Some people think that they might have been modeled after animal claws and teeth, but they're still not quite sure. So there's a lot of mystery attached to them as well. And mystical sense to Mm -hmm. them. Okay, Mm -hmm. that makes sense. So it makes sense that they would use these as basically her way of connecting with Gamera. That is the conduit through which she does that. And I think Priestess is actually a very apt way to do it because she's the one advocating for Gamera and trying to tell everybody, he's not your enemy. It's actually not unlike to a certain extent if you've seen Godzilla versus Kong, the, the little deaf girl doing the, basically the same thing, telling people, you know, leave Kong alone and then telling Kong at the end, hey, Godzilla's not your enemy. Go fight the robot. You know, <laughs> in a weird way. So it's such a fascinating concept. My friends at Geek Devotions actually did a devotional video at my suggestion because they were doing a month dedicated to kaiju films. They said, oh, so we're going to do Gamera. And I said, okay, which one? So well, we're going to do the original. I was like, you need to do Guardian of the Universe. <laughs> so they actually talked about, this is an interest, interesting, they talked about Asagi and Gamera in connection to Christian suffering with Christ. Okay. Because basically that's what happens in this movie. When Gamera gets hurt, she suffers with him. Mm-hmm. You know, He puts his hand out and takes one of the laser beams to save the humans and her, her, her hand starts bleeding. There's no one in Ava 1. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah, he gets getting the robot Sinji. <laughs> uh, he gets his shoulder gets hurt, and then her arm starts to bleed. The only thing I don't quite understand is why nothing happens to her when Gamera gets hit with the bad CGI missiles. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple times where it seemed to be selective, but generally it was really effective. It was just. It seemed like it only her sync ratio wasn't high enough. Apparently, <laughs> uh, apparently it only probably it, a good it, thing. She's only yeah. <laughs> apparently she's only affected when it's Gauss inflicting the damage, I guess. But then it's interesting because then when you get to the end of the movie, you have this wonderful scene where it's just Gamera the, the acting is her. just so good on both ends, the suit acting and the actual actors. And you forget that they're definitely not in the same scene. This is another case of actors literally acting to nothing, and it still works. And the suit actors doing the same thing, and just how expressive that Gamera suit is, and it's just. It's just full of personality and character. And then he lifts the priesthood from her. She still has the bead and the bead will factor into the sequel. Okay. And so they're going to keep developing that as they go. But now her connection is different. And she even kind of mourns the fact I can't hear what he's thinking anymore. I feel like maybe we should, you want to talk the ending? Anyone? I just jump all the way to the end. I know where he, he we're all over the place. That's fine with me. I just, I just, okay. So it was funny. Yeah. I was telling my children, like, okay, Japanese films seem to be a little more subtle. Be like some of this psychic connection stuff. They don't talk a lot about it, just sort of showing and not. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, Americans love their big action scenes and explosions versus Japan. <laughs> and then we get to the end. <laughs> Michael Bay film brings out the middle. And it feels like that. I thought you said that um, Jap- Americans like their explosions. I'm like, 
Well, I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you weren't. Were, were you we not prepared? The battle, and there's a Michael Bay film in the background. <laughs> <laughs> apparently, it was great. It was great. Uh, apparently, like neither one of you were prepared for Hadouken headshot. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. It was. It was very anime, and like the going up this base and slamming down. And, yeah, there's that actually has been kind of homaged in several different places. It kind of goes back to Gamma versus Virus. Something similar happened there. But it's also, I would not be surprised if it was being referenced in Pacific Rim, Godzilla King of the Monsters, or something like that in it. But in King of the Monsters, it happens really fast. And this one, it's, there's it constant lot, tension. It was a lot of fun. I'm just watching it like a, like a little kid, like, ooh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was the, fun. The very final, sh- like, showdown, like, eye-to-eye thing, that was probably the best part of the whole. Oh, wow, in the factory stuff. with everything blowing up. Oh, then he, was it the factory no, or, like, a refinery? It was a refinery. refinery yeah, yeah, the, yeah, it was like an oil refinery. Yeah, <laughs> the oil refineries are favorite targets for kaiju. Also, the Tokyo Tower, that poor Tokyo Tower, that, that thing co- gets wrecked by Kaiju all the time. That was a cool shot. That was, yeah, that is a, that's actually yeah. probably one of the most well-composed yeah. shots in yeah, the whole movie. That, nice. is a, that was an amazing piece of cinematography. No, yeah. no. Yeah. Which part? The yeah. Gauss nesting on top of okay. the wrecked Tokyo like, Tower like against the sunset. Yeah, yeah. No, that was cool. Now, now, Joy's not with us tonight because she's visiting with Gamera, but with Teddy, but she did get to see that scene with us in, in the theater here. And uh, she was like, oh, that's a really awesome shot of, of <laughs> Gauss nesting on the Tokyo Tower mm-hmm. at yeah. sunset. Although I have to admit, I didn't realize he was nesting at first. It wasn't it's a like, she. Well, well she, yeah. maybe. Yeah. That, see, that was the weird thing about this. Which I actually find life finds a way. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of like that. But exactly. actually, I feel like I feel like it goes a step further than that even. And this was such a fascinating concept. And I feel like people don't talk about this nearly as much. So one of the things that they have in this is they have some of the pseudoscience that gets thrown into these they movies like they always do. And it turns out Gauss only has one pair of chromosomes, perfect, which they say right. makes it a perfect. Yeah. Life form because humans have twenty three pairs and yeah. I think they mentioned a it was a, a frog something like, like that yeah. a green yeah. frog has twelve all and like they mentioned another animal had thirty nine but they said this one only has one which makes it a perfect life form and they said well we don't have to worry about anything it can't reproduce they're all female and it's like actually it has both X and Y factors in its chromosome so it can it's switch genders at will basically so insert terrible joke here but <laughs> well that's what the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park do yeah basically yeah. and so they said and that this is such it's such an interesting concept that they toss in there almost like they just like, like we're just gonna leave this here for you to think about which is they said nothing like this can exist in nature evolution quote unquote has waste said this was created genetically engineered genetically engineered this is intelligent design basically because in this movie now this was implied when you guys came for the first gamma movie this was implied but in this one it is the whole thing gamma is an artificial life form yeah. which is how they can account for the fact that it can do crazy things like spin around and would fly like a flying way saucer cooler this one than the original. yes <laughs> yeah yes and uh and gauss is also an artificially yeah. created life form because they said nothing like this could exist in nature yeah, I, and it's such a—it's like it's like so you're kind you're basically endorsing intelligent design. I mean, <laughs> well, uh, yes, I, I know. I took the, it as like the Atlantis people that went away. They were so far advanced that they did genetic yeah. engineering. They got burnt. And they made they, a better turtle. And then they made a better turtle <laughs> as they died and yeah. left the turtle for the future generations. I basically, mean, the story goes they dabbled in God's domain. I guess you can say made Gauss. 
the Gauss got out of hand. They're on the verge of collapse, and they made Gamera to deal with the Gauss, but it was a little too late. And then Atlantis fell because of the Gauss, and then Gamera was left behind. And I love the fact that we're introduced to Gamera, and they think he's an atoll. And I wrote in my notes, you know, no, Gamera is an island. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) He's just been hanging around. I thought it was better than that, but thanks, Jet. Uh, yeah, I'm not so sure about the endorsing intelligent design. That's, I think it's a bit of a stretch because the whole like implication. Well, not that, the like, not that it was not that uh, not that Gamera not the Gamera Gauss were made by God, but just the idea of something like this can't exist in nature. It had to be designed, right? But I mean, you, they're also talking about like humans having junk. Uh, yeah, chromosomes. Yeah, stuff. I know. Like, that goes into a whole other can of worms if you want to get into some theology about that. I understand that. Yeah. Trust me, I've had many a talks with Reverend Mafune over it. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yeah. But I just, like I said, it's one of a lot of interesting ideas that gets thrown in there. There's also talk in one scene about environmentalism mm-hmm. and blaming that, kind of bringing back the, which is actually thematically related because i looked into the actual movies uh, well because i looked into the actual story of atlantis so i'm not going to give too much but relating the hubris of the atlanteans Mm -hmm. to the hubris of humanity now basically Mm -hmm. saying because of pollution we've brought the gauss back and that is another thing that kind of ties us into the first gamma movie i mean that one started out in sea nuclear plutonium and things again another yeah similarity yeah so uh, they really just don't like nuclear power. <laughs> I, I can't imagine why. <laughs> so I don't remember which time I was here that we talked environmentalism as a topic. But I just I caught that because we'd done it on mm-hmm. another movie. I think it was probably King Kong Escapes. Yes, I think, I think, think it was right. part of that. Yes, I think you're right. But it's just interesting. Then we have the finale in the refinery. I didn't know there was a purposeful connection between we've changed the climate so that Gauss is now coming alive and then we're fighting with giant refinery. Mm-hmm. explosions i didn't i didn't mm-hmm. know that was a thing or just it makes it cool no well again explosion. like you were saying i mean yeah the the action finale is not subtle but i think a lot of the themes mm-hmm. in this are a bit more subtle yeah and even though there are scenes like the one i just talked about where things are spelled out it's still the rest of the movie doesn't ignore that it just keeps playing with that theme in subtle ways yeah. you know having the finale adds an oil refinery yeah, exactly. and blowing it up. And Gamera, admittedly, this is a little bit of a misstep in the script because Gamera basically <laughs> basically goes into Absor- anime power-up time and just absorbs the fire and gets a second wind. And yeah. I'm like, okay, unless you're a Gamera fan, you're not going to remember that he eats fire. Otherwise, this kind of comes out of well, nowhere. <laughs> well, they did, they did. I really felt like we were in a Final Fantasy game. You, you oh, the fi- boss that absorbs fire. The uh, the Final <laughs> Fantasy elements only increase from here. Now, didn't they didn't they mention though that the plutonium is partly what woke him up? That he absorbed. Yeah, that he was I low- think so. So yeah, I mean, yeah. they did impl- again subtly imply that he kind of absorbs energy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just wasn't as clearly spelled no, like, out as yeah, like, he like, eats fire. He eats fire. <laughs> and radiation. Not as much as Godzilla, though, admittedly. But you know, since we're on the subject of Gamera, even though we technically see Gamera pretty early on in the movie, by the way, just a fun little fact, the captains in the ships that are at the beginning oh, yeah. of the movie, one of them is, I can't remember his first name, but his last name is Hongo, who was in several classic Gamera movies, including Barogun, the one that you saw. So that was a little nod to things past. And the other captain was played by Akira Kubo, appeared in a lot of classic Toho films. So I just wanted to throw that out there. But so we see Gamera pretty early as the atoll, and then he makes his actual entrance popping out of the water 
And then he goes, one punch man right there on the gauss. Yep. Just takes him out with one slot. And then he one shots a gauss later. You yeah. know, which is so funny because they built up the gauss being scary. And then you find, oh, wait, there's three of them. And then Gamera's like, but then they keep getting bigger and bigger (laughs) keeps escalating that's the the pacing in this is so expertly done it's never boring it's not too fast and it feels like everything continues to escalate Mm -hmm. there's this sense of okay so we make the gauss scary oh crap there's three of them and then gamera shows up and he's like (laughs) one punch man you know he's done with it and then he one shots one later, but then the other one keeps getting yeah. away and getting bigger, and then it becomes a major threat by the end of things. I really felt like during one of the fights, I think with one of the bigger ones, that it was like a, a swing and a miss, a swing and a miss. What's your AC? No, <laughs> <laughs> you didn't hit. Okay. <laughs> by the way, since we're on the uh, speaking of Gauss, this Gauss, the last Gauss, the big one at the end, is the first time they had a female suit actor playing a kaiju hmm. her name was yumi kanayama and some people thought okay the gauss is supposed to be female maybe they wanted her to give a more feminine performance actually it wasn't that at all they just needed someone really small <laughs> to fit in there yeah it makes sense <laughs> no, i mean yeah there's definitely a difference in what's like build type mm-hmm. <laughs> like the body type body type yeah i mean gamera is this big bulky thing with these stubby little arms and then well i can't even call him a turtle because here's something weird for you i love conico but have tusk <laughs> <laughs> what do you call that i call it the gamera <laughs> but Kaneko has gone on record as saying that in his Gamera movie universe, turtles don't exist. Oh, really? Yeah. Is that just because he didn't want a Kenny running I around? I don't know <laughs> why he said this, but apparently he says in his actual world building in this universe, turtles are mythical creatures. So, huh. so Gamera's Turtles like- don't exist in this universe. And that's why if you watch the Japanese version, the dubs don't always pay attention to this. But in the Japanese version, they never say Gamera is a turtle huh so apparently the concept is that the legend of gamera inspired stories about turtles and they're these mythical creatures interesting okay (laughs) it makes turtles cooler turtle power right (laughs) to make the obvious joke by the way matt frank who's a comic book artist and you know did the cover art for a bunch of godzilla comics and for the Arrow Blu-ray set and all of that. He actually made a poster that was a crossover between Gamera and the Ninja Turtles. Nice. And he made two different versions. And in the and one version is just regular Gamera, and the other version he gave Gamera a mask. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, take my money now. I didn't buy it, unfortunately. I should have, but it's. I mean, I even saw some marketing for when this movie was originally released by ADV Films in the United States, saying that Gamera was the original Ninja Turtle. <laughs> Okay, I'll I'll accept that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, since I'm bringing up ADV for you, Joe, I need to bring this up for you. I actually do recommend watching the American English dub. There's a UK dub as well, which is a little bit infamous because not only do the British actors have very British delivery, screw you, WHD3, (laughs) they're very kind of very British dry delivery. They also apparently snuck in a bunch of random techno music to fill in silences. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all right then so there you go elijah i kept my word i mentioned the uk dub for you you might actually might be interested in it joe because like i said 
was dubbed by ADV. And the dub voice for Nagamine was Tiffany Grant, Asuka. Oh, cool. When I listened to the commentary, there was a little bit of an interview with her where she talked about dubbing this movie. I'm sure. (laughs) And I'm like, wait a minute, I know that voice. (laughs) And then the guy who was really doing the commentary was like, yeah, she did the voice for Asuka and Evangelion. I'm like, oh! (laughs) Charmed, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Basically. (laughs) So I'm like, I need to watch the dub again. I haven't watched the dub for this in a long time. (laughs) Uh, So there you go. More anime connections. Because they're all over the place with this thing. Can I do a shout out for a couple of the minor characters here? Go for it. Okay. First off, Crazy Taxi Driver is awesome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm I've a little cons- wanted to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little concerned about that guy. He kind of steals the show for a couple of minutes, doesn't he? I was wondering where that was going. I kind of forgot about that till just now. I was like, it was random. It, it was random, but I enjoyed it. It was random, but it was, yeah, it was like, oh, yeah. Everyone could relate. It's like, yeah, I always wanted to do that. <laughs> I, I'm just curious. How did this girl convince him to do that? <laughs> I, I, I think she, she, I think she just looked at him with those big uh, Segalian doe eyes and just. <laughs> that's not Segalian. That's, that's <laughs> anyway, that's the most fun. But Either I, that or she sat there and she said, you're going to take me there or I'm going to tell my dad about you. <laughs> <laughs> he was most fun but i also enjoyed the nervous i don't even know guy who got the cop the detective the, guy. Yeah, the detective he was, he was great which by yeah. the way he comes back in the sequels okay too. i really enjoyed him he's actually a very a popular very well i don't known think this actor. is in our jurisdiction anymore <laughs> <laughs> one of the best lines ever <laughs> kind of reminded me this is a stretch but kind of reminded me of zenigata and that's the bump yeah. line detective yeah probably because did he have a trench coat Maybe not. I don't remember. I don't think so. Yeah, that he was played by Yukajiro Otaru, and he's been in gobs and gobs and gobs and gobs of movies. Mm-hmm. He's been in basically everything, every kind of genre you can think of, including some that I have basically no interest in ever seeing. But he was in a lot of stuff that Kaneko's been involved with, and he's been in some independent films, independent kaiju films, actually. So he's all over the place. But he's great. And like I said, he yeah. comes back. I, I'm glad. That makes me happy. My third, I just really enjoy smarmy, smug government guy. <laughs> <laughs> I heard you mean uh, like the prime minister that yeah. you wanted. No, he Gaius wasn't the prime minister. He was yeah. a government official. He, he like had the glasses. He's like, yeah. I actually heard some people compare him to Peck from Ghostbusters. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the prick that gets him arrested. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and those two were fun. The actor shows up and lost. Later on. Oh, of course he does. Everybody's in Lost. (laughs) Everybody gets Lost. (laughs) Yeah, but no, I I actually, while I'm thinking about it, I want to make sure I run through some quotations here I have from Conoco related to the movie, just because I think they really do speak to what he was trying to do with this. By the way, another thing that Ito, the screenwriter, worked on, Joe, that you might know, he worked on Pat Labor. It was a mech anime. Nope, didn't see that. And uh, which was also with Mamoru Oshii, who directed Ghost in the Shell. Mm. Pat Labor just sounds like the name of an 80s singer. <laughs> well, I, it was an 80s anime, so I'm not surprised. But I, I'm thinking like an 80s hockey player <laughs> from Canada. <laughs> yeah. yeah okay. uh, we'll, uh, I guess I just can't ignore this. Kaneko came from a background where he directed several dramas. And you can kind of tell he's obviously good at that. Unfortunately, he got his start in a salacious way. He worked with Nikatsu, 
which used to be one of the most prestigious movie studios in Japan. And then in order to survive, they resorted to making, well, porn. So Kanako kind of cut his teeth a little bit doing what was called Roman porno. It's unfortunate. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but that, you know, he had to start somewhere, I guess. He got out of it relatively quickly, from what I can tell, although he did work on that for a few years. Anyway, he actually said at G-Fest, which was the G- uh, G-Fest 2019, which is where I saw him, in the beginning, I couldn't take Gamera seriously. First, because of the low budget, and second, because the character is a flying turtle. <laughs> I felt like I should make it a comedy rather than something serious. But I realized producer Sutomu Sukikawa was very serious and passionate about this project. So I asked one of my good friends to write the script, and that's where Ido came in. When Kanako got the script, he said, when I first received Ido's script for Gamera and read through it, I was really surprised, and it struck a chord with me. But I felt nervous, wondering if I would be able to make the film in time or not. At first, he thought he was going to direct the special effects like Noriaki Yuasa did in basically all of the old Gamera movies because he also directed the special effects and everything else. Mm-hmm. Normally, they split those jobs, except for Baurugan. He only did the special effects in that one. And then he met Shinji Yaguchi, and Shinji Yaguchi told him, I can do anything. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, okay, you're in charge now. <laughs> and before this, he had worked as a storyboard artist for anime. He did actually work on a Godzilla film back in the mid-80s. That's where he got his start. And he worked on Ultraman shows as well, and low-budget 16-millimeter movies, including a movie about Orochi, the eight-headed dragon that he made with Hideaki Anno in the mid-80s. Okay. I'm interested. <laughs> <laughs> I can find it for you. Uh, <laughs> and then another one here. Kanako said, Daie wanted to target children, so they were skeptical about Gamera since our script was more serious than a kiddie kaiju movie. Right up to the premiere, they tried to convince me to change the story. <laughs> but I was able to convince them using my brain and logic. That just <laughs> interesting translation there. And then another thing he said related to that was, we questioned how it would make sense that Gamera would be a children's ally and be convincing. This goes back to what we were talking about with Asagi. Gamera is the children's ally, so that means he is also the human race's ally. And here's the crazy thing. This movie had half the budget of a 90s Godzilla film. Half the budget. And it's 10 times the movie. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. It just is. Writing matters. Yeah, well, I mean, even the special effects. If I could, well, if I too, showed you too. a clip of either Godzilla versus Space Godzilla or Godzilla versus Destroyer, because this movie came out between those two. Okay. If I showed you clips of the special effects and those compared to this, it's practically night and day. And you're like, where did all that money go? Because hmm. <laughs> this looks infinitely better. If we're on the subject of special effects, do you mind if I interject here? Go for it. Here? It's interesting to me. I found a lot of the close-ups of the monsters a lot more engaging than some of like the wider shots because mm-hmm. again because gamera is so big and bulky it's hard to move or, you know have really interesting punches but, but a lot of the like close-ups particularly on like and gao gauss gauss, gauss. Some just, of it, just so, think of it like gout yeah well, <laughs> it, it just it's a weird spelling so yeah yeah anyway like a lot of the, like close up on his face and like when his eyes are rolling and looking around and mm-hmm. it was interesting to me as, as a Jim Henson 
yes. fan. Mm-hmm. I appreciate the puppetry and some of the techniques that go into that and that really bring out the character. Like, And then the other moment I thought was really strong in that regard was, yeah, you mentioned this earlier, the look between Gamera and uh, his priestess. Asagi. Yeah. Asagi at the end is like, okay, I actually see Gamera's thinking here and his character coming through in a way that I don't think I have quite as strongly and like the eye mechanisms were just really good. So yeah, I dug I I dug the facial the close-ups for both mm-hmm. monsters. And actually, the close-ups on Gauss are really disturbing. I think it's the eyes that get me about the Gauss. Well, and then there's all... they looked so big and beady and just yeah duh yeah. I mean, there's something a little like some of the best like 80s puppetry that's like almost otherworldly about mm-hmm. how how mm-hmm. some of their movements. Yeah, at the same time, there's there was some close-up where. Gauss was eating something and you could see like his oh. his throat movements. Yeah. He's yeah. Like, that looks and the sound effects when that's happening. Yeah. Uh, that was actually more unnerving than actually seeing you know the actual human bodies or whatever the, that he's eating. Mm-hmm. Just the you, sound effects like yeah, the the oh. most unnerving one for me was when he was eating people out of the train, and mm-hmm. you could see like oh. the green uniforms that they yeah, were on the, the soccer team. team. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And you're just like, oh. Oh yeah, that's that's worse than the poop earlier. Uh, <laughs> that's a nasty ASMR right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, that was actually an extrapolation from how Gauss was in the '60s. In the in the original film that he was in, Gamma versus Gauss, he was basically a vampire. He drank blood, but in this one, he just flat out eats, eats people. Eats you. Yeah. If not, you didn't know, Gauss was evil. Not, <laughs> not just your face, whole whole body and all. Yep, <laughs> he eats everything i have another question about time uh, in terms of like what other movies were coming out around this time mm-hmm. do you guys remember when independence day was 95 4 it, it was 95 94 <laughs> you're gonna make me look this up aren't you fight <laughs> do it because uh, independence day 1994 oh no we're both wrong 96 96 uh, <laughs> really we're both yeah, well, wrong. <laughs> well, I, I kind of feel like this movie sort of predated a little bit. Like the shot of it's like underneath the surface of the ocean. This is really early on where Gamera like is swimming and kind of covers up the ocean. Definitely got a, a Independence Day vibe there of like the spaceship covering over the. Yeah. Just, yeah oh, that gets sky. referenced a heck of a lot in the, a Godzilla movie later. There's yeah. a very Independence Day. Actually, a couple of very Independence Day inspired Godzilla movies. So, I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Roland Emmerich stole this from this movie or some other there might be well then kaiju that movie. just gives kaiju fans more reason to hate him <laughs> <laughs> well you know when you have a movie about a big iguana i'm just saying <laughs> well yeah, true, yeah. True, true, true you sour people yeah, yeah, yeah. just a little bit but I want to go back to this because you guys had hinted at it a little bit. The portrayal of the military in this, we had already talked about how they did the realistic thing where they had to basically deal with the bureaucracy in order to act. But the thing that is markedly different, I think, about this compared to, say, a Godzilla film is some would argue it's a bit more nuanced in this. In Godzilla films, typically the military would be well-meaning but ineffective, Mm -hmm. basically. In this one... They're somewhat effective. Yeah, I like the Gankly damage. Yeah, they, they're misguided, but more effective. Yeah, yeah and Gamera is not invulnerable. Yeah, he's well, durable for sure, but he's not invulnerable, which some would which some yeah. would say makes him a little bit more sympathetic. So he's not like Godzilla, who can just shrug off military attacks like they're nothing. He actually has to worry at least a little bit about it. 
Now, yeah. it'd be difficult for the military to actually kill him, but... Yeah, I'm not sure the military could kill him, but they definitely could hinder him from fighting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, I, it's just such an interesting... Again, it's subtle, so it's still keeping, in a lot of ways, to the trope that the military ends up not winning the day, because they don't solve the problem. Yeah. Gamera solves the problem, and he does it really without any help from the humans, because the humans keep trying to do things, and then they just... Make just, things just, worse, and just his priestess. That's the only. Yeah, thing that's is. the only. But it's not the military that solves the problem. Is what yeah. I'm getting at. The, the most. <laughs> I mean, is, they try, and then all that ends up happening is Gauss yeah. nests on the tower, and then we get the "It's raining eggs" yeah. scene later. Well, yeah. like my daughter is watching, and she gets she got so mad when they started attacking Gamera and said Gauss. She's like, "No, no, why are you doing?" That? <laughs> because. <laughs> the government does stupid things. <laughs> I think I think that's actually a common theme. I, th- that is a theme is the in this. Does stupid things. Yeah, and they don't listen to the uh, to the experts. Yeah, because that's because we had Nagamine and the bird her, doctor and yeah, the other doctor and the other guy, <laughs> and they were trying to they were advising them on the stuff to do, and they basically said, "Okay, we're just going to go deal with this thing." It's like you don't even know what this what behavior is. patterns yeah. are or anything like that. You need more information. You're like, no, we're going to go. We've decided to capture it yeah, because yeah. because governments never ignore the advice of their experts. Yeah, <laughs> let's uh, let's not uh, let's not get into too much of our current events there, uh, or the powers that be here on the island. But anyway, it's, uh, of course, we have some very very strange experts experts here on the island. So uh, I mean, we have a guy whose specialty is monstrous mushrooms. So are you? No, he's a lot weirder than that. Okay. Let's just say I think those mushrooms might be at least a wee bit magic. But uh, to me, I'm uh, apparently he listens to the show, so I don't know if he's going to send me an angry letter or sick one of his mushroom children on me. But <laughs> he's apparently a fan. Gave me a COVID shot, by the way. That was interesting. I'm not sure I would trust that. <laughs> I didn't either, but board mandated. So... <laughs> oh, here's another anime oh. connection for you, Joe. Hajime Isayama, creator of Attack on Titan, said the Gauss inspired the Titans. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Here's a question for you, Nate. How does this... I've heard you talk in podcasts before about Japan's uh, recession. When did that start? Late 80s, early 90s. Okay, so do you think when we were talking about the governmental ineptitude, is there some reflection of that situation going on here? I think so, for sure. I mean, I, thought, I, I, well, I mean, we're also seeing a lot of the economic consequences of the kaiju in this yeah, as well. I, I did think so. it was interesting. Like in disaster movies, I'm not sure I've ever seen one talk about like the stock prices falling as a result of all the destruction. Usually, these things just focus on things blowing up. Yeah, not including the mm-hmm. economy. Yeah, well, and that that actually goes back to I, I have another quotation here from Conoco that actually relates to what you're talking about there, Tim. He said, "This is interesting." Kaiju films are the Japanese equivalent of American action movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would take it. In U.S. films, the panic arises from a focused situation. For example, the siege of the building in Die Hard. Mm-hmm. In kaiju films, the panic comes from a national collective panic. Yeah, that was another another thing I thought of from the last one when we talked about in that first gamer movie how Japan itself felt like the protagonist like yeah, trying yeah. dealing with this thing and yeah. it's like oh this is kind of that all over again mm-hmm. yeah he goes on to say Godzilla and Gamera films have the same goal to show Japan in panic 
Toho's way is to present Japan as an economically strong, traditionalistic country that then has inharmonious elements dropped in that disrupt the flow of order. In my Gamera films, I approach Japan from underneath, showing the people and their daily lives and create panic by threatening that life. Hmm. And then he went on to say, Kaiju itself has no reality. And so it is difficult for most people in the audience to accept. Trust me, I've run into that quite a bit. There then should be as much reality, things the audience feels familiar with, surrounding this unreal thing, the kaiju. The more the audience feels connected with the film's reality, the more readily they accept the unreality happening on the screen. That's some good theory for making kaiju movies. Yeah, yeah makes sense. Doesn't just apply to kaiju movies. No. I think. I think it, anything fantastic. Uh, anything fantastical. I mean, you and me, Nick, we're well yeah. versed in that because we delve into that yeah. all the time. It's our bread and butter in terms of our writing. And I do think that for a lot of people, the barrier to speculative fiction is the fantasticalness of it because they're not used to it. But that's why. I, I mean, when I first started marketing my books, one of the things I tried to was like, don't let the genre scare you. This is a really character-driven story. You got to have characters that people care about, and then they'll deal with all kinds of crazy light caves and smoke monsters and things. Yeah, or they'll believe anything, including that a hobbit can carry a ring up Mount Doom if you do it right, if you have good characters. If you make that little hobbit and his friends amazing characters, they'll go along on the journey for you, even though it sounds crazy. Yeah. Magic rings? What are these things? (laughs) Good point. Precious. I was just thinking of the interview that I got to the island a little early and we were watching a little bit of an interview with the director and going back to the Japanese self-defense forces being somewhat ineffective or at least not as effective. It's not believable for like when he go, he was talking about how it differs from Godzilla films, especially like the American Godzilla films where it's completely unbelievable that our military would be ineffective against the monster. No, it's that the Japanese military would be ineffective. Yeah. For Americans, they find that difficult to believe. Yeah. That was his theory. Yeah, which is true. I mean, it does seem like, oh, okay, well, that makes the believability of the monster unrealistic. It's a cultural thing with how powerful militarily the United States is. The United States for years has been in a position where it... It's a superpower. Yeah, yeah, it's a superpower. It felt... This is not 100% accurate, but it felt invincible that its military could defeat anything, which why, honestly, the only time the military ever succeeds against Godzilla is in Godzilla 98, which is an American film. All the rest of them, even the newer American films, they don't succeed. And it goes back to a very Japanese trope where they're wrestling with that concept. Is it that they're wrestling with the concept of like their military mm-hmm. history of World War II? It's partly that, but also trying to figure out what the place of the self-defense forces is now, which is something I'm going to develop a little bit more actually in a future episode. Because the existence of the self-defense forces, <laughs> it's, a, it's interesting to say the least, how it actually came into being. Well, yeah, they weren't allowed to have a standing military, but they were allowed to defend themselves. Well, that and basically the SDF is a glorified, in terms of its legality, is basically a glorified police force. Yeah. Public safety section nine. <laughs> I need to, I feel like I need to have Jet pipe in every time there's an anime reference, but it's a little too late for that now. So, you know, he'll throw one in for you. 
He was in an anime, so <laughs> singular point. But no, uh, going back to the cinematography, and this has to be mentioned, and that is one of the things that makes Kaneko's style very distinct compared to a lot of, especially the old camera movies, is he liked to film the special effects and the monsters from low ground level to help with the illusion of the size, but also to create a little bit more immersion. So it made the audience feel like, wow, you're actually standing there on the street and you're looking up at everything. Just look at the way he composes the shots. He, a lot of times, he likes to have stuff in the foreground. So you don't just see the suit actors doing their thing. There's stuff in the middle of it. It makes the shots look a heck of a lot more dynamic. Because this was the problem that 90s Godzilla movies had, where they they kept doing all of these wide shots where you can basically see the entire miniature set and you can see the actors moving around. It just doesn't look nearly as cinematic. It's probably going to burst a few people's bubbles, but I'm sorry, they don't. Compared to this trilogy, no. <laughs> it sounds like when it comes to the 90s, you were... Uh... You think Gamera won that decade? Oh, <laughs> Gam- I mean, yeah, the board made him king of the monsters now. But when you get to the mid-90s with this movie, I'm sorry. Godzilla gave that crown up. Mm. He gave that crown up for about four years while this trilogy was being made. Because he outclassed Godzilla. And the funny thing was, he was a joke 15 years before this. <laughs> you know, if you watch Super Monster, you watch those old movies, Gamera was a joke. Then he come, then like I said, he comes back and he he's like, "Hey Godzilla, I do this better than you." <laughs> hot take, you heard it here, folks. <laughs> it's not that hot of a take. Almost everybody will agree with me. <laughs> if they don't agree with me, I don't know if they're true fans. <laughs> I pulled an Elijah there. <laughs> they might be true fans of only Godzilla, but not Camera. So they're Godzilla only fans. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I I can't do that in good conscience. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I feel like I I owe an apology to everybody for saying that. <laughs> I didn't get it. I didn't get it either. Okay. <laughs> okay, that's probably better that way. Anyway, I will not destroy your innocence by telling you. <laughs> that's probably good. <laughs> I will finish out our discussion of the movie with this one last little quotation, just to see what you guys think of this, especially since you've had at least a little bit of exposure to the Showa Gamera movies. And that is, I was reading an interview of Noriaki Yuasa, the director of all but one of those Showa Gamera movies, but his fingerprints are all over the whole series. And near as I could tell, he has a reputation for being a little bit coy about what he thinks of these movies, but going by this quotation, doesn't sound like he's much of a fan. He said, they are movies for older fans rather than children. I prefer them to be children's movies. The two films are too dramatic. He's talking about this one and the first sequel, because this, con- this interview was conducted before the third one had been made. For example, there is no need for Asagi's cheek to be cut in Gamera, the Guardian of the Universe. There's also no need for Gamera to be the Guardian of the Universe. I don't quite understand what he's getting at with that. Uh, you know, but apparently, you know, Star-Lord and his friends don't have quite as big a jurisdiction as the Titanic Terrapin does. But Well, to be fair, we don't really see Gamera patrolling the universe. We just I, see well, yeah, I, I, for me, it's Japan. just a hyperbolic English title because in Japanese, this movie is called like something like Kaiju Aerial Dogfight or something like that. That's the, what the, that's the literal title translation. Huh. <laughs> I know. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. But here's the kicker. It sounds a lot like the incredibly strange creatures. (laughs) But anyway, here's the kicker on this quotation. 
They're Gamera movies. They're not art films. (laughs) (laughs) He he doesn't seem to be trying very hard. (laughs) (laughs) You you want to talk about hot takes? I mean, I think he's upset that this director showed him up. (laughs) Straight up. I I have to agree. I'm sorry. I can see that. I will take this Heisei trilogy over any of the Showa Gamera movies any day of the week unless I want something to laugh at. For the most part. Or if I want to make Jimmy happy. Yeah, sure, Jet. Remind me about that. Yeah, yeah. Poor Jimmy. To be honest, I wouldn't really mistake this for an art film anyway. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's closer fun. to an art film. I mean, it's fun. It's definitely, like you said, it's better than the previous Gamera movie that we saw here. But yeah, it's not hard. <laughs> that's not hard. I mean, it, it is still, but it is still basically a big budget popcorn disaster kaiju. Movie. Yeah, yeah, well, we'll uh, hopefully I'll be able to get you to watch the sequels. Because like I said, you're going nowhere but up after this. Again, I don't want to hype it too much. And the third one, the third one is actually regaled as one of the greatest kaiju movies ever made. So okay. we'll see how you feel about that. All right. So with that out of the way, let's move on to the Toku topic. Hi, this is Eric Anderson from Nerd Chapel. Nerd Chapel is all about bridging the gap between nerd culture and the church. This is done by an online and social media presence, a physical presence at comic, anime, and gaming conventions, and with tabletop game nights in Spring Lake, Michigan. I've also co-written two devotionals for Nerds and Geeks with Nathan Marchand. 42 Discovering Faith or Fandom, and the new 42 God Terraforms All Things. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, and please explore the website nerdchapel.com for more information. Alrighty, so we're going to talk about Atlantis. What do you guys know about Atlantis? I know it's this huge pop culture touchstone at this point. It's a hotel somewhere in the Caribbean. (laughs) <laughs> that is true actually <laughs> right. i think the genie and uh ducktales made it sink if i remember right oh really that, that's an interesting theory <laughs> it wasn't the gauss yeah yeah no, was... yeah i know for a lot of people when you bring up atlantis they're probably gonna think isn't that the one that's ruled by depending on which comic you read namor or aquaman no there's a stargate there yeah yeah there's a stargate there it's stargate a space there. station yeah yeah didn't michael j fox was it there once Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I remember that one, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so did James Spader. No. Yes. No, he didn't. No. Wait. <laughs> no, no, no. Wasn't that um, James Gardner? Same movie. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, so it's this thing that is kind of ubiquitous with culture. We all know the basic gist of what Atlantis is. It was interesting that in the movie, they act like the audience might not know what it is. <laughs> well, and they also likened it to some other things, which is interesting because they talked about the continent of Moo, which has yep. been in a couple of Toho movies. Yes, I, I, I call that and, a uh, And uh, Lemuria. That's a related concept. Okay. That's another continent that sunk into the ocean. And the idea that they present, which I think is kind of an interesting idea because there is some real world application for this. The idea of a sunken continent is something that just that story spread across the world and inspired these other stories. Mm -hmm. And so the theory of the movie is that Atlantis was the origin of that. And that's where the story of Mu and Lemuria and all the rest of them came from. Interesting theory, (laughs) to say the least. But what I looked into was actually trying to figure out where did the story of Atlantis come from? We all tend to think of it as being mythological, kind of. You actually have Plato to thank for it. I was going to say, isn't it Greek? Yeah. So 
this is an ancient island continent, first mentioned by Plato in his writings. I hope I say this right. You may have to help me with the Greek here, Nick. Yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> Timaeus and Critias? Sure. Uh, if I should show you what I have here on the computer, that might help. It serves as an allegory for the hubris of nations. Because it's in a philosophical discourse. The story is recounted as part of that. Atlantis is a naval power that besieges Athens, but is repelled by Athens alone, saving the free from slavery, unlike the rest of the world. No one else could repel Atlantis, but Athens did. Atlantis then loses favor with the gods and sinks to the bottom of the ocean. However, the Athenian army is also swallowed by the earth, (laughs) according to the story. So there have been several proposed locations for where Atlantis could have been. Some say it was in or near the Mediterranean. That makes sense. The Atlantic Ocean, that's probably the most common one that you'll hear, that it was off in the Atlantic Ocean someplace. It's also been theorized that there could have been several locations in Europe that could have been Atlantis. One guy even said it might have been Stone Age Ireland. Hmm. Don't know how that works, but okay. (laughs) So, little quotation here from one of my sources said, In fact, the passages considered give us the materials to form three different views about it, that being Atlantis. One, that it is an exercise in philosophical myth-making, which extends the range of the Platonic myth-making to include representation of political action and war. So, talking about why the story came about. Two, that it is a factual report of a historical event, preserved by a unique line of transmission which happens to be suitable for the required philosophical theme, and three, that it is a piece of virtually free invention whose principal interest is in giving the, here's a fancy word for you, the mimesis (laughs) of human action in a way which simulates its customary appearance, a kind of er-fiction or romance. I always did find it interesting that Tolkien basically made his own version of Atlantis in um, in Numenor, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of had a similar story beats the an island that got full of its own hubris and mm-hmm. the gods sunk into the sea. It just always struck me as an interesting thing because yeah, I think I'd heard it had Greek origins too, but most of Middle Earth is not Greek inspired. It's much more Norse. Than, and, yeah. yeah, but again, the story of a lost continent. Yeah. It, you know, it's, it's something that is deep hurting. <laughs> huh? <laughs> it's deep. Yeah. It's yeah. Under the sea. Well, rock and, climbing. Yes. Rock, rock, rock climbing. Oh, that is true. Lost continent. Anyway. <laughs> but yeah, you, I, I guess yeah, it's like one of these ideas that can, or myths that has transcendent cultures. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the, the story of the flood, because there's a lot, there's flood narratives in basically every story, yeah, not just was, in the Bible. Yeah. I was think, just thinking. The Epic of that. Gilgamesh has, uh, Gilgamesh meets. A survivor of a great flood from one years things, before. It's and one of those things, like things that. that's so ubiquitous that it gives it a little bit more weight to like this might actually be based on something true. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. like I said, you know, again, going back to what we talked about, playing with the whole idea of the, because the Atlantis story, or at least the more common interpretation of it, is that it is about hubris. This was Plato saying, "Oh well, I'll get into it. I'll get into it." So the historicity of Atlantis from this account is highly questionable because of the gods being involved. Clearly, these people have not visited Monster Island, but the argument could be made that Plato was simply adapting a historical account to suit his literary goals, that being to celebrate the glory and deeds of ancient Athens. Mm -hmm. Because again, Athens gets to be the hero of the story. Some have interpreted Atlantis, this is different, 
Some have interpreted Atlantis to be the dream and ideal of, Atl- of Athens in the 5th century BC with its maritime splendor and power and the blessing of the gods, at least while they had it. Maybe you can speak to this a little bit, Nick. Plato blames the reduction of the divine in, At- in Atlantean constitution, not the accumulation of their wealth on its fall. Hmm. I mean, I don't know enough, but I, I can see that being said. Well, here, here's another quotation from my one of my sources that might help you with that. Quote, all these themes recur in the narrative of Atlantis. Because of the excellence of their constitution, the ancient Athenians were beautiful in body and soul and ruled both themselves and the rest of Greece in justice. The inhabitants of Atlantis, on the other hand, undergo the same degeneration as their modern Athenian counterparts. So basically, the argument goes, Plato is telling this story to remind his audience, that present-day audience, hey, you're making the same mistakes mistakes. as the Atlanteans, and you used to be a great people. Again, avoid the hubris. Yeah. Don't read history. mm -hmm. The end of the Critias tells us how, at first, the Atlanteans were obedient to their laws. Only virtue was important to them, and they disdained their prosperity. This made them wise and gentle. Their wealth did not make them drunk. But as the divine element in them became weakened, they became greedy and power hungry. It was this hunger which led them to attack Greece and cause their total defeat, end quote. Yeah, it seems like most of the Atlantis stories I've heard, there's always some sort of fatal flaw. Which is a very Greek thing to do, isn't it? That's what hubris is. It's a fatal flaw. Yeah, exactly. You know, Greek tragedies are full of this. Like, (laughs) you were good until this one thing you couldn't deal Mm -hmm. with. Now, again, there are some different takes on the story, as you would find out, because let me tell you, I was looking into sources that are technically through classical studies, and I did not do classical studies. Now, I've listened to a lot of people and source a lot of people who do do classical studies, but classical studies was not something that I did. So some of this was a little difficult to process for my English major brain here. But there are different takes, uh, interpretations of the Atlantis story. There was a professor named Taylor who writes that he thinks the moral of the Atlantis story is, quote, transparently simple. It is that a small and materially poor community animated by true patriotism and high moral ideals can be more than a match for a populous and wealthy empire with immense material resources, but wanting in virtue, end quote. Yes, clearly he saw Star Wars. <sighs> but it's interesting, all these, you know, this idea that Atlantis is a warning for the Athenians. I mean, that's the same beats that they're playing in this movie, is mm-hmm. that Cameron, what Atlanteans did is a warning for modern, modern. Hu- modern yeah. humans. Yeah, and they even so, said, like, because uh, one of the characters asked Nagamine, yeah. it's like, well, if humans are making the same mistake, why do you want to bother helping them? It's like, hey, they're imperfect, but I don't want to see them be destroyed, yeah. basically. I'm paraphrasing horribly, but so, she makes that statement. So they channel, I mean, they channel this theme very well, actually. Mm-hmm. Now, the author of this essay that I was looking at countered what this professor said by saying that he thought the real moral of the story was about, quote, defensive war, resistance against aggression which he went on to say, is the supreme glory of a people, particularly if it is in defense of other peoples as well, to rescue them from foreign domination, whether actual or threatened, end quote. So it's a slight variation on it. You can publish unless you disagree with someone. Apparently. (laughs) That's just how things work nowadays. You know, academia, trust me, I know all about it. So you could also look at the stories of Atlantis as a socio-philosophical myth constructed from historical elements and used as a cautionary tale 
for the original Athenian audience, mm-hmm. which is what we've been talking about. Now, are any of you familiar with the term platonic irony? Oh, the irony. I've heard, I've heard platonic of platonic ideal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the other interpretations of the Atlantis story says it's meant to be a platonic irony, which is described as, quote, a form of expression which, when taken with its context, tends to itself, we are taken momentarily backstage, as it were, and shown the puppet work. Okay. So it's showing the puppet work behind Athens. Yeah. Now, someone else also went, uh, went on to say that it is something that Plato termed a noble lie. Have you heard that? I think so, or at least the idea of it. Yeah, it's a concept that Plato puts forth in Republic, which is probably his most famous work. According to Wikipedia, yes, I do cite Wikipedia, deal with it. Quote, in politics, a noble lie is a myth or untruth often, but not invariably of a religious nature, nor only propagated by an elite to maintain social harmony or to advance an agenda, end quote. Which, given what we've already talked about, does sound very probable if Plato is using it as a cautionary tale to tell modern Athenians, hey, don't make the same mistake as the Atlanteans, be noble like your ancestors. One of the other essays I looked at said along those lines, quote, the content of the myth combines both heroic and didactic elements. It tells its audience how they should live their lives on the model of the Republic, because that's what the Republic is about, you know, the ideal state, and celebrates the paradynamic achievements of the Athenian past, end quote. So getting away from the classical origins, we've talked about the pop culture implications that Atlantis has had. But it's actually had some very interesting effects on history, to say the least. Here's a few of them for you. (laughs) When Columbus set sail in 1492 on the ocean blue, just like the rhyme we all learned Mm -hmm. in school, people actually believed that the New World, as in America, would be Atlantis. Hmm. How's that for crazy for you? Uh, (laughs) Then I have a few more quotations here from one of my sources. We didn't sink. (laughs) (laughs) Sir Thomas More for example, composed his utopia as a political parable. And I've talked about, actually, about utopia before in my Latitude Zero episode, only to discover that many of its readers took his work literally, one even urging more to dispatch Christian missionaries to ensure the salvation of the utopians, because utopia was an island in this book. Sir Francis Bacon went even further than more on capitalizing on Atlantomania in his unfinished New Atlantis, it seems that these people were forced to flee from their original homeland of Atlantis, which was, of course, situated in America when it was obliterated in a great catastrophe. (laughs) End quote. And a lot of European explorers thought Native American peoples, when they went to the New World, due to their great accomplishments, these tribes great accomplishments so we're talking the incas and yeah. the mayans and people like that that they said they must have descended from atlantis <laughs> diego de landa even postulated that the old people of the yucatan were the lost tribes of israel and you're probably thinking what does that have to do with atlantis hold on a second and his later followers postulated that these ancient jews migrated to the new world via atlantis <laughs> wow yep Sometimes an idea takes hold and people have a hard time getting away from it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wait to hear about more of these. Here's another one for you. Quote, by the late 19th century, the atmosphere had been created in a major boom in Atlantean studies. 
And the prophet of this movement was the American scholar and politician Ignatius Donnelly. What a name, by the way. (laughs) Although best known today for his work, The Great Cryptogram, never heard of it, (laughs) in which he claimed that Shakespeare's works had been written by none other than Sir Francis Bacon. Donnelly wrote a book that became the Bible of Believers in Atlantis. He called it Atlantis the Here's your dollar word for the day. The Antediluvian World. Oh, yep. Antediluvian. Sports flood. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Published in 1882. There could be no doubt as to Donnelly's total belief in the existence of Atlantis after reading his preface and 13 propositions, which I have not recorded here, but I did read them. They are wacky. <laughs> in essence, Donnelly's hypothesis was built upon the theory of diffusion of culture. According to this school of thought, Cultural innovations had but one center of origin from which they gradually spread out, diffusing to other peoples, end quote. I think we as Christians would call that the Tower of Babel. (laughs) This in turn made Atlantis more popular in occult circles in the 20th century. You ready for some wackiness, boys? The most popular of the Atlantean occultists was Madame Helena, I hope I'm saying this right, Petroina Blavatsky, Blavatsky, excuse me, said it wrong. The founder of the Theosophical Society, not theological, theosophical. Quote, Blavatsky was a charismatic figure who managed to convince a great many people of her special ability to penetrate the enigmas of existence. In true life, she was an ex-circus bareback rider and pianist. Can you say con artist? (laughs) I think the word you're looking for is charlatan. (laughs) In her inner world, she was a medium who claimed to be a, quote, persecuted virgin who traveled the wide world in search of occult wisdom, end quote. Gathering disciples about her, Blavatsky formulated an immense theosophical dogma which not only provided for the existence of Atlantis, but also put forward a polar civilization known as Hyperborea, which I've actually heard about Hyperborea, and a South Pacific realm known as Lemuria, which I mentioned before. Since her own work, The Secret Doctrine, was largely unreadable, (laughs) most of Blavatsky's teachings were popularized by a follower named W. Scott Elliott in a work called The Story of Atlantis. (laughs) So apparently no one could understand her. Then it took someone else to propagate. Well, you just start making stuff up. Then, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Here's another one for you. Quote, Charles Berlitz, for example, suggested in two books, The Mystery of Atlantis, The Bermuda Triangle. Yes, they're connected. The existence of an undersea Atlantis in the area of the Bermuda Triangle. Mm Hmm. According to his theory, all the disappearances of people, ships, and planes in that area are due to the peculiar activities going on below. So pervasive has Berlitz's influence been in recent years, mind you, recent years when this essay was written, that a major Canadian press story of September 10th, 1977 carried the claims of a self-styled clairvoyant that said he, quote, sensed an underwater civilization of amphibious people, descendants of the fabled lost city of Atlantis, end quote, around Bermuda. So I guess that's where Namor and Aquaman hang out. 
Yeah, that would make sense why they wound up in America. Must be right. Just a, a hop, skip, and a swim away. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Here's another one for you. Quote, a good illustration is provided by the work of Emmanuel. Here's another crazy name. Vilakovsky, who has theorized that a collision. It's too bad Jimmy's not around. He would be tickled to death by this. That a collision between Earth and a comet around 1500 BC resulted in the destruction of Atlantis and caused worldwide upheavals. He further claimed that this comet liked Earth's neighborhood so much that it moved in and became the planet Venus. (laughs) And quote, and Jimmy knows all about Venus. That's where he fought a good chunk of the war in space. I feel like that's just a fan fiction like combining story. Like I love this. Yeah. I love this story about the about a comet, and I love this thing about Atlantis. Let's combine them. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out how the comet destroyed Atlantis and then went to Venus. That confuses me a little it, bit. It's like skipping rocks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pinpoint accuracy. Yeah. yeah, the comet's just flying around mine and it's on business. Like, oh, sorry, destroyed your continent. Going to Venus now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I just personified. A comet. Deal with it. Then here's another one. Quote, another recent scientific approach has taken its impetus from the theories of Eric von Donneken. Here, the tale of Atlantis is viewed in cosmic terms. It wasn't already? No, here you go. Here you go. Cue the meme. Aliens. Astronauts from an outer space, Atlantis, once came and colonized the primitive planet Earth. I was wondering when we get to aliens in Atlantis. Ancient aliens. Ancient aliens in Atlantis. Mm -hmm. And then they built a Stargate system Mm -hmm. in our galaxy. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, lost continents are generally disregarded, too bad for them, because of the theories of plate tectonics and continental drift. So, there you go. It just, it just it seems, I think it resonates with people with that idea of something that was, you know, the fall of a civilization is something, I mean, keeps happening throughout history. So I think there's just a resonance mm-hmm. that that could be. Well, plus we like to find things like things with tra- like some tech somewhere, somewhere is this ancient civilization that will tell us all the answers. Yeah. And these myths get their own like little like things that go along with it. Either like there's an underwater civilization there with mermaids and stuff, or they have their own precious metals. Like, they mentioned orichalcum in this, which is like, hey, I know orichalcum. I've synthesized that in Kingdom Hearts quite a bit. <laughs> oh, yeah, that is a thing. Yeah. yeah that is a thing. <laughs> With this, I didn't know it was in Kingdom Hearts. It's been too long since I played Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. It's probably in, like, Final Fantasies, too, but it wouldn't surprise me. Because of this, I looked it up and it was like, oh, yeah, this is sort of like Mithril. It's this fictional metal that's been used in a variety of things. Yeah. Well, there you go. So, as we talked about, the hubris of Atlantis, still relevant now as it ever was, I would say. And the ideas presented here will only be developed further. And I don't know if all of you will be able to make it back to the island to watch the sequels, but I hope you will at least watch them on your own time. Because, like I said, one of the rare trilogies that gets better as it goes. What was that again, Jet? They've been tweeting a lot this week, haven't they? They have. Do I really have to read their stuff? Yeah, okay, fine. I don't want to be shot in the orbit. Sure. What is it this time? Not as bad as you think. So you say. Now this root world. You're welcome. Pun times, everyone. Pun times, everybody. Anyway, 
so I don't violate my contract. Shoot for the star's name. Come on, we got to bring him down to earth. <laughs> I think he'd be over the moon if he went. Yeah. Maybe he just lands on the moon. <laughs> be glad you're my friends. Anyway, some of my favorite people. Anyway. Don't bring so much gravity to the situation. <laughs> <laughs> we need to add some levity to this conversation. <laughs> anyway. According to the board, in regard... Give it some bounce. (laughs) Moon physics. Anyway, according to the board on their Twitter, because only the best things come from Twitter, in regards to false claims made by one of our recent visitors, Elijah Thomas of Kaiju Conversation, we assure everyone there has not been, nor ever will be, red bamboo permitted on the island. If you don't know, that is the alleged terrorist organization that had a bunker here. We apologize to Mr. Thomas for this unfortunate incident, and we will do better next time. In hiding Uh-oh. it? At making sure we better inform our guests when tests to our equipment will be conducted. Thank you to our wonderful team of distinguished guests here on Monster Island for helping everyone find a better way forward. <sighs> I believe that's what you would call a narrative. One I disagree with, but I just work here. Or Elijah, though. He took it in stride, but that still wasn't fun from what he told me. Anyway, let's move on to something a little bit more fun, shall we? The Patreon shoutouts! All right. Go show Travis Alexander! <laughs> Michael Hamilton! It's the Muppet Show with special guest star Danny DeMena! Eli Harris! Chris Cook! <laughs> Damon Noise! It's the Muppet Show with special guest stars, the Cellcast! Yay! Yay! Alright, and then Bex from Redeemed, Otaku! And she's getting two because I forgot her last time! Bex from Redeemed, Otaku! Silly me, I forgot to include our newest patron, Elijah Thomas! Tofu Fury! I suddenly feel more powerful. (laughs) That is the power of tofu. That sounds like an anime waiting to happen. Mm. <laughs> that sounds like a One Punch Man thing. <laughs> just, yes. I get my powers from Tofu. <laughs> <laughs> and he still can't beat Saitama. <laughs> Either that or Genos is going to be all like, I have to eat Tofu to increase my power. <laughs> Come on. We all know that w- that could be a thing. That, that could be a thing. That could be a thing. <laughs> In all the excitement, I forgot to plug the next couple of episodes for the show, so I will do that right now. Our next episode will be our second Patreon-sponsored episode, this one sponsored by Damon Noise, who has selected The Magic Serpent from 19, I believe, 66. This should be an interesting one, to say the least, because I'm going to be honest with you, I haven't watched it yet. So this is going to be very new for me. And then we get to episode 50 and MIFV's second anniversary, people. 
And we've got some big plans for that milestone episode, which I know all of you will enjoy, but we're going to keep it a surprise until the day comes. Live in suspense! Kaiju lovers, live in suspense! <laughs> All right, now that we've had that fun, now it's time for shameless self-promotion because no episode of MIFV is complete without it, except I think it's just going to be you two this time. <laughs> oh, yep. You've heard us talk about this before, Dear Old Trends of Thoughts, your premiere podcast for the creator and the consumer we talk about all manner of storytelling there and our uh, spin-off podcast is called the weekly hijack when this episode comes out we should be in the midst of the last season of lost it's, i was gonna say when is season six starting yeah it's it's about to start but by the time this episode comes out it should have started and mm -hmm. we will be in season six until about the end of the year, if I count it out correctly, we'll end 2021 with uh, I, the end of Lost. I am eagerly anticipating hearing your wife's brain explode. <laughs> and I'm still trying to figure out if she's going to be angry at the finale or happy with it. I don't know. I'm leaning toward angry. I'm leaning toward happy, but we'll see. We've you know her better her. than I do. We so. prepped her with this one. No. We, uh, so yeah, you, we do a lot. We preview season six because it just works better that it just, way yeah we just feel it works better if you know how what the flash sideways are but if you're not a fan of the end of lost you should listen to the weekly hijack and hear us dissect it because nick and i have basically been we joked the other day about how we've basically been preparing the last 10 years to do this podcast <laughs> <It's> true <laughs> yeah true. although the question is what are you going to do after you're done with Lost? oh honestly the weekly hijack will probably go on hiatus for a little bit we're we're just kind of ready for a little yeah. break from it and we'll see if something else takes its place. At some point, there may be something new, but not immediately. Yeah. Oh, oh, well, a new podcast. But we'll see. That's Ooh. like I said, loss will be until at least the end of this year. So, ah, I can understand. But trust me, I know how carried away you can get with podcasts. I'm technically running two of my own. <laughs> uh, check out Henshin Men, people. You should. And leave that and this show five star ratings on both Podchaser and on iTunes. That would be much appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> and I won't say too much quite yet, but there might be a third podcast with my name on it, possibly starting in the next few months, assuming that the board doesn't fire me or something like that, or fire me into space, I should say. Anyway, what else you guys got? Yeah, I mean, do we want to talk about the new book, Nick? I mean, we might as well tell people to go buy Zorzum, right? Zorzum, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Zorzum, like yeah. you, we've mentioned on here before, I believe, haven't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah, we so have. Go Go buy Barbarian Stories by me, Nathan, and our co our fellow friend, Eric yeah. Rothman. So there you go. Lots of stuff to check out. Not necessarily kaiju related, but good stuff nonetheless. Now, gentlemen, if you excuse me, I need to go check on my intrepid producer before his brain turns to mush doing all of that tedium. And also, I have a meeting that I arranged with the board's executive assistant, I have a few things I need to talk with her about. So if you'll excuse me, it's time to cue those credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nate Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is at TheMonsterIsla1. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy 
and the Monster Island Board of Directors at Monster Isla BOD. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations! And be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, and Twitch. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wanderer on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Open Way, Battle with the Colossus by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. All film and audio clips belong to the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and or Podchaser to spread the word about the show. You can also support us by joining MIFV Max on Patreon. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara! Hello? Hmm. Miss Perkins isn't here. Good thing I came a few minutes early. I hope the jammer Jimmy put in my watch works on any bugs planted in this office. Hmm, this place is pretty spacious. And those shelves in that desk are fancy. <laughs> and a window overlooking the Monsterland Resort. Probably so she can keep an eye on all us little people. Jessica's picks were right. There's that weird boomerang mounted on the wall. The sword hilt with the Xbox buttons on the shelf. The huge diamond-shaped paperweight in the inbox. Oh, and here's the picture frame lying face down on the shelf. And it's torn so you can't see the faces of the people in it. But I recognize those uniforms. Now, where's that locket? Maybe in here. Here it is! Don't touch that. Think fast, Nate. Hello, Miss Perkins. I was just... Spare me your excuses. Give me that. How long have you had that? I've always had it. Okay, what's in it? It... it... it's none of your business. I see. Did you ask to come here just so you could harass me? No, I came here to give you the truth. The truth? What truth? The truth our Orwellian overlords took from you. Stop wasting my time. Get out. I won't. Then I'm calling security to have you... Open the locket! My hand! Give that back. Not until you see what's inside! I'll destroy you. Even they can't make you... Do you want to taste more of my power? Now give me the locket and you keep your life. Sure. Just let me open it. This boy and girl, um... You're not Miss Perkins. You're Carone Caymanly. 
the sister of Red Space Ranger Andros Kamen Lee, the second Galaxy Pink Ranger, and at one point, Astronomer. I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, stop denying what's literally right in front of you. I don't know when or how you came to the island or when the board did this to you, but they put tiny devices on you called influencers that have been feeding you lies for so long you started to believe them. And then they gave you a whole new identity fashioned to be their loyal worker. <sighs> I'm such an idiot. How did I not see this? I even watched episodes of Power Rangers in Space with Chris Cook on the podcast. Was it seriously the Clark Kent effect with those hipster glasses? Wait, could that be where they put the influencers? Let's find out. Do you see with eyes unclouded? I do, and your tricks won't work on me. Mm. So the influencers weren't in your glasses, but maybe... Silence. You made a big mistake coming here today. Look around you, Corone. All these mementos from your past, your real past. Astronomer's Ratharang, Ecliptor's Sword Hilt, the torn photo of you and your brother, the spearhead from Astronomer's Wrathstaff, and that locket. You've always known deep down who you really are. Why else would you have all these? I'm a collector. You can understand that, right, nerd boy? Oh, stop lying to your- We're done here. But- Don't make me change my mind about calling security. Very well. Nate? Yes? Maybe. Just maybe. I'll consider what you've said. Thank you. Now leave. Yes, ma'am. It's done, Jimmy. I just pray the truth sets her free.